You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche and I'm joined by my podcast partner, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we're excited to be talking about revenue operations. RevOps, as most people call it. It's a key function in any organization that allows you to measure what matters, identify trends, and make educated decisions. To help us out today, we have Sebastian Van Heineken, president of Central Metric, an organization that helps build scalable processes powered by technology that deliver predictable revenue growth and a smooth buyer journey. Sebastian, thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. All right, Sebastian. Usually to get our audience to just know you a little bit better, we love to start every single podcast with the same question, which is... For those people that only know you through work, what might be something that you're really passionate about that they may be surprised to know about you? Huh. I think I do a good job about letting people know this. So it's either one of two tracks. I have an unhealthy obsession with anime. I watch anime all day. It's my escape (laughs) from work. And we to share recommendations if anyone's curious. But one thing that I'm really into that a lot of people don't know is that you know, I'm a DJ, a working DJ, and you know, I throw events, I've done weddings in the past, and so music and is a big part of my life that I don't think comes across in my revenue operations Zoom calls, at least. <laughs> so you're not starting each call with like a mix? <laughs> like, no, this is my initial call mix. <laughs> Let's try tying it together. <laughs> You know, Sebastian, I was thinking for my workshops, I need kind of a DJ in the background to play songs at the right times. <laughs> so we might have something to work on together. I could be that guy. Yeah. I love it. I love that idea. So Sebastian, uh, write a little bit about your background, of course, and it looks like you started out humbly as so many of us did. I did too, and I'm super open and passionate about it as a sales development representative and uh, was in that function a few times before you were leading a team and then you consult on that. And now today, of course, you're with doing what you're doing now, consulting on revenue operations with Central Metric. Tell us a little bit about that story, that journey. How do you got there? Yeah, I mean, anybody that has been an SDR will... This will sound familiar to you. So I started as an SDR, like you said, humbly, no experience, no understanding of venture capitalism or software as a service or any of this stuff. I walked into a sales team that was just raised Series A for 14 employees. And by the time I left, there were 500 and we were at Series D. And so from the inside, at the bottom of the hill, so to speak, I got to see what happens when a startup goes through hypergrowth? All the mistakes, all the things we did well, things that I wish I did better. And so I grew with the company. But then I got stuck in what I like to call the sales development cul-de-sac. I didn't think I was quite an AE. So I turned down the offer to kind of move into that team just for cultural reasons. I think AEs, at least back then, had a certain vibe to them that I do not match in any way. Uh, So I didn't see myself in that room. But I wanted to be a manager. But I couldn't be a manager because I wasn't a manager. 
And nobody would let me be a manager because I'd never been a manager. And so I hopped around a few times until I found myself in consulting, which was the closest I could get to managing an SDR team at the time. One thing to it led to another. And I've been consulting for, I think, four or five years now. So yeah, it's been a winding road. And it all started with 100 plus cold calls a day at a company that was trying to discover product market fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so was that part of the, I guess, passion behind RevOps? Like, did it start then when you had certain systems that you were using and you thought like, oh, this could be so much better or I wish we could enable the team more? Like, is was that where the passion kind of came from? Yeah, I think because I came in so early, I got to kind of be that player coach. So I helped out with the playbook and I was always contributing to other people's scripts and templates and I evaluated a few tools. And so I got to do some ops things as I was an SDR. Looking back, I shouldn't have done that. I wasn't being paid for that work. (laughs) And for those of you out there, player coaches need to be compensated as players and coaches at the same time. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox now. Uh, but I got to see kind of in my the way that I think about buyers' journeys and revenue organizations is deeply informed by my time as an SDR because we're the end users of the software platform that is a revenue organization. And so all these things that are built so that an SDR can press those buttons, fill in those fields, and do this activity. And so it better be optimized and enabled for that SDR. I love it. And so I guess, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. Like, what is the ideal client? When are you looking to come in at that early stage as well? And like consult from that, I don't want to say day one, but like from the time that they're ready and looking to scale? Yeah, I think our most impactful work happens in that Series A realm of things. Maybe you've either just gotten your first big investment or you're looking for your first big investment. And so how you report and how efficient you've been growing is very important when you're bringing that, that data to the your potential board. So yeah, yeah, that's the way I think of it. And are you mostly working with software companies or is, does it transcend into services? Like It's all B2B yeah. SaaS. Yeah. And it's usually a founder, a revenue leader, a marketing leader. I mean, our biggest client ever was public. So we can go up market if we have to. But with those projects, it's like, hey, do this thing. You're done. You're gone. With the scaling companies, we get to be a bigger part of their growth. And it's just more rewarding. I can definitely see that. And so I guess (laughs) coming in, apart from not working with you, what is the biggest mistake that you see people making at that stage? Yeah, I would say it is an issue that manifests itself in many ways. But it is it usually comes down to a lack of empathy and understanding for the other party. It could be sales to marketing, lack of empathy, marketing to sales, lack of empathy, sales to prospect, lack of empathy. And so we build these processes that serve us, the people that build them, and not the people that we want to go through this process over and over and over and over again with a good experience. And so that lack of focus on the people that we're really building this thing for is, I think, the biggest mistake that I see. That's really interesting. So it's funny you mentioned lack of empathy because... As an individual contributor and as a manager, you start other organizations try to put process on you without any understanding of the day in the life of that rep or person that's going through this. And it creates friction. And then it's us versus them, which is a terrible thing these days. And it's even, I think, doubly bad in a SaaS company. It is so important to put that customer centric and getting everyone rowing in the same direction. 
to have a successful SaaS company, in my opinion. You can't have these silos of marketing and sales and ops and professional services and customer success without having that linkage between all of them. Hey, one of the things I've heard you mention is, hey, to have a recession-proof strategy, it's really just RevOps strategy. So tell me more what you meant by that. Yeah, I'm open to being convinced. But every strategy I've seen that is recession-proof is also something that we tell our clients to do anyway. It starts with lowering and controlling costs, right? So why are we paying for all these licenses? Are there any that we can cut? Then it goes on to sales efficiency. With the work that we're doing, how do we do that same amount of work and bring in better outcomes and better results? Investing in automations. How do we take time that's being spent, aka money that is being spent, and give it to a robotic process that can do it over and over again at a lower cost? Focusing on cross-functionality, combining budgets, marketing sales success to deliver an ABM strategy, for example rather than everybody working in their own silo, reporting on their own results and kind of coming together at the end of the month. Putting in PLG, so connecting your product to your sales team and making smarter decisions. And then just the overall feeling that the wallets of these venture capital firms, these PE firms are tightening and shrinking. There's a lot of unspent VC money right now. And why? Because they don't want to blow it on some company that's going to focus on growth over profitability and efficiency. Everything I said just now, I've read in an article or two or three or five that said, do these things next time there's a recession. And I just kept seeing repeat themes, things that we do already with our clients, regardless of the economic conditions. Great point. In fact, I was talking to a client recently and they go, hey, we're still wanting to grow. We just want to grow profitably. (laughs) And that's going to be our focus for the next year or two. The thing about growth and scale sometimes is, hey, you can't have, it's hard to have one without measurement and making sure we're doing it right. And a lot of product companies out there, they get a lot of that early success, early adopters. They built the bright, shiny object, but they don't bother to build the processes around it. So then when they try to scale, the wheels come off the bus, right? We don't have pins in those tires to even keep them in. So great points there. Let's talk about one of the functions within it, which is forecasting. So one of the critical things for any company out there is accurate forecasting. And when you got tons of business coming in early on, hey, you know, I might not have gotten it right, but we're over our numbers, so everybody's happy. Later on, you're going to go, look, we got people invested in this thing, and whether we're over or under, people care, because it's a predictability of your business. It shows you you're in control of it. Any advice on how we can do a better job of having more accurate and predictable forecasting? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. And I think we could do a whole podcast on just that, just forecasting. And I will be honest and say that that's my least favorite part of things. My CEO does all of our forecasting and our consultants do the forecasting for our clients. So take what I'm going to say with a grain of salt. You know, I'm doing my best over here. But kind of in my opinion, with any system where you need to improve an outcome, you also need to improve the inputs. And so working backwards from your current forecasting metrics. Uh, Why do you forecast this number? Is it an assumed close rate that might change due to certain products or lead sources? Is it an assumed conversion rate from call to meeting that might change per rep? What can you do at the small granular level 
to kind of feed through and, and eventually influence that end result. So forecasting, it's going to be helpful either way, whether you're doing it very well or slightly well. So my answer is like always go into what are the numbers feeding into the forecast? How can we improve those inputs? So that way we are just naturally forecasting more revenue, increased pipeline, et cetera. And if we're not, then we know exactly why. What point of the current buyer journey is where we lose the most forecasted dollars. Let's fix that so that we can make more money in the future, which is why we forecast. All right. So let me pivot, but not pivot in a way. So whether it's forecasting or any other thing you're trying to measure, you mentioned a one of the key things is the inputs going into it. So, hey, let's just be real for a second. Leadership wants this critical data to make better decisions. Unfortunately, this data gets entered by little old people like myself. And hey, we may not even understand why we're entering it in for one. And two, it's really difficult to get accurate data. So what we end up seeing sometimes is, hey, Sebastian, let me put in there what I think you want to hear. Let me put in my assumptions. And then leadership is making decisions, assumptions over assumptions. Any thoughts on how do we get better input, right? How do we improve the accuracy of that data coming in? Yeah. And feel free to push back on this. I have a simple analogy to follow. And correct me where this doesn't fit, but essentially, if I personally want to go to the movies with my friends, I am the one that wants to go to the movies. So the outcome is in my ownership. The thing that should happen is the thing that I want to happen. So what I need to do is send my friends a list of possible movie times, make sure everybody's on top of their scheduling, make sure everybody agrees on the movie because I want the outcome. I'm in charge of enabling everyone else to put in their inputs so that I can get my outcome. Now let's go back into the business world. I am on the board. I want to know LTV, customer acquisition costs, all these metrics and numbers more than anyone else, more than the sales rep, more than the sales manager, more than the sales director. So I am the one that is responsible for producing that outcome that I want. And so therefore, I am obligated and incentivized to enable the people that are in charge of the inputs. So whenever there's a problem where an SDR isn't putting in the data right, I always turn that question back. Why are you asking them to put that data in? Why is it that important? Is there any other way that you can gather it that doesn't spend this person's time? Could you automatically grab it from a call recording? Could you enrich the data through a third party? Could you have an admin come in and fill in the fields for you? Because you are the one that wants the outcome. And so you have to do the things necessary to produce it. An AE, a single AE should not be in charge of calculating LTV. But the things they do influence that LTV. So you need to make the AE's input so easy, so brainless, so automated that you will get what you want in the end because you're tied to that outcome, not the AE, for a simple example. Yeah, I like that analogy. That's really good. And to kind of just carry on from there, what is something that people are doing manually? Because you just listed a whole bunch of things. What is something you see over and over again that people are doing manually that they really shouldn't be? Like if you were going to make an investment in something to enable your team, what do you believe is the most important rather than doing it manually? That's a good one. 
my mind immediately went to duplication and assignment. So like I've seen a lot of teams where the first thing an SVR and AE does every day is look at a big list of stuff, only 50% of which is valuable to them or worth their time. And so now they're spending, I don't know, Monday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. prospecting, but it's really like testing if this email works and matching this record to this account and making sure the LinkedIn field is filled in because that's how we do things. And so if you can get to a point where step one is outreach or it's research before the outreach, then you're in a good place. I would also add that there's a lot of handoff activity that is currently done manually. Maybe there's a meeting, maybe there's a form outside of the system that needs to be filled out that you can just either put in the CRM, you can invest in a tool that scrubs recorded calls like these and fills in things. Like There's so many tools. The revenue tech landscape is almost a trillion dollar market. You're going to find something that can automate the thing that is annoying you. So that was a long answer, but those are a few examples. <laughs> no, I love those examples because that was something, I mean, this was many moons ago, but that was something, as you mentioned, with dedupe and like basically data entry. So yes. in my first job as an SDR, we were I was at a company that got acquired by Salesforce. So the company I was at also had a Salesforce instance. And it took about a year, but then they started to amalgamate the two CRMs, right? Or two versions of Salesforce, right? I remember working, I think it was like on the GE account, like I was supposed to be prospecting into GE. It was a really big company. Anyway, I go into Salesforce. There were 150 accounts for GE. (laughs) So I had to figure out which one I should be working out of as like the parent record or whatever, because there were so many duplicates. And so really, literally half my day was figuring out what I should be working out of, which information was actually the right information and correcting a lot of that myself. And I remember it being put upon us as SDRs who worked that way every day to dedupe the system as we found those duplicates. And that was part of like our responsibility because they thought, oh, what's the easiest way to do this? Let's just have the SDRs do it. <laughs> and so that really resonated with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that really resonated with me. And being able to, yes, I guess like just take some of those really manual steps in prospecting out of the process is so easy to do now. Now, so that said... When do we get to the point with a tech stack that enough is enough or so much is too much that people have too many systems to think about, too many tools they're using? Kind of going back to that story you were saying about like sometimes when you're thinking about doing enabling but cost effectively so that you're not paying like system that overlaps system that overlaps system. So when is enough enough? Like how do you do that in an educated way apart from, again, hiring you (laughs) or your consultants? There's a couple ways, or there's a couple triggers that if you see this, then you're probably in trouble. It is when your cost of sale gets out of control, when you have more than one system doing the same thing or focusing on the same part of the same function, when you have a piece of technology that nobody knows what it does and nobody uses it. And a lot of words to say, basically, like these sales tech companies, they have sales teams too, and they're really good at what they do. And I've seen countless examples of somebody that was sold on some new platform app exchange 
widget or what have you, where they didn't really need it. They were sold a bill of goods. And now it just sits there collecting dust because this person doesn't want to admit they made a mistake and cut me. And so like, there's a lot of this in the industry. Even my first job, like we were very well enabled, but I think we had too many tools. You know, we were a series A company that had Zoom Info, Salesforce, Salesloft, Gong, another prospecting tool, Sales Navigator. And it's like, this going to that other point, if I'm spending half my day logging into systems and making sure this thing is talking to this thing and this thing is working, then I'm not selling. And these tools, the purpose of them is to enable more efficient and higher volume selling because they are all in charge of some aspect of bringing in revenue. And so if it's not, it's time to cut it off. And so I think the way to get around this is empower yourself as a buyer of revenue technology and go into every conversation with your requirements. And so the requirements of a revenue organization are the steps of the buyer journey. So before going to vendors, you should have a decent idea of the steps, the touch points, the activity, and the outcomes of your buyer journey. Then you can take that to a HubSpot, a Salesforce, and a Pipedrive and say, which one of you can do this best? And the whoever does wins your business. That's amazing. Yeah, I like that. That's eventually where one of the startups I worked with, we got to that point where not so much, I love what you're saying about making it the buyer, like map to the buyer journey, but we did have like a requirements list every time. So it wasn't just that willy nilly people could in with different power roles within the organization or different budgets within the organization could just go and buy something. They had to go to finance with this checklist. And it was like every time then, which, you know, of course, everybody else hated because it made them do more work to, in order to get what they wanted. But it actually cut down on that overlap, which another quick story, different company I was with, we did an audit, company-wide audit of all of the systems that we had that overlapped and consolidated and I think I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that ultimately once, I mean, of course, there, we were like different contract renewal dates or end dates and stuff like that. But once it was all said and done, we were saving over $1.2 million a year. So it was this wild, like eye-opening exercise. Yeah. And that pulled you out of that yeah. latest recession too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And something else, and I'll say, Carlos and, and Sebastian, have you seen this before too, where people end up in that situation with so many technologies because they're actually swapping with their customers. So like, for example, if Gong was a customer, I would buy Gong, even though I already had Chorus in place or something like that. Yeah. And that was how that company got into that situation. So I was like, oh, this is rough. <laughs> There's a lot of trading going on. There's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was at an SKO and they threw up a bunch of sales enablement and sales ops was talking and they were threw up all these different logos on the screen. At first, I thought it was some of their customers because it looked like a NASCAR slide. What it really was is all the technology they're throwing at their revenue team, at their reps. And I was like, I don't know how anybody even keeps all that straight. I mean, when do you have time? It's a full-time job just to learn how to use those tools, then to actually do your job and then use them at the end of the day. I don't know. So I think in some organizations, due to a lack of discipline on the function of sales, people are trying to rely on a tool to fix everything for them. When the reality is, hey, we got to get down to some basics about daily blocking and tackling and what's the role of this individual and what are they really paid to do every day? If you got 
90 days and a quarter. 30 of them are sucked up in holidays and weekends. 30 of them are sucked up in internal stuff. You got 30 days to hit your quarterly number, quarter in and quarter out. And if I'm sucking that up with, hey, I need you to do this app or that tool, it really takes away from productivity. So this could be a whole other podcast by itself too, but I got some strong feelings about how do we leverage technology to help us do our job versus thinking that it's going to fix and do our jobs for us. Gong does not make the call for you, (laughs) for example. And I love Gong, by the way, but Gong's not doing the interaction for you. It's just doing analysis after you do it. Hey, Sebastian, you mentioned buyer's journey, and I wanted to double tap on it because a lot of people these days, hey, we really want to be sensitive to a buyer's experience. We want to have a customer-centric kind of sales culture to help our customers deliver value at the end of the day. Love the hearing that. What do you mean by buyer's journey? Because I don't want to just assume that, and then I'll I'll ask another question behind it. Yeah, so the buyer's journey is a combination of all of the steps, touch points, pieces of contact, conversations uh, and value that is presented from, I don't even know I have a problem to, I am a repeat customer of this business making referrals. So it is all of that. Not all of it is trackable. You hear a lot about the dark social and friend-to-friend reviews, word of mouth and things like that. But they are all a part of that buyer's journey. All of those steps. And I'm going to say it again. Every single one that is associated with solving this problem and making this purchase. All right. So when you're thinking it from an operations perspective, how do you map the buyer's journey, the steps they go through to evaluate and make a decision to your internal systems? Can you give me some examples? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Short answer is talk to the buyer. And make sure that on the other end, your key stakeholders, which are the lowest level sales and marketing reps, are also not putting in too much work and losing efficiency to create that outcome and deliver that value. And the way that we do it, and shameless plug for myself, and the way that we do it for our clients is we literally just put it in Excel. In this phase of the buyer journey, what's the buyer goal? What's the seller goal? How do we advance? How do we exit? What information do we need? What's happening on both sides? What is the buyer doing? What's the seller doing? What content is involved? What technology is involved? Within that technology, what fields, metrics, and reporting do we need? Painstakingly, we will spend almost an hour mapping just the awareness phase of the buyer journey. And then we'll do that for every applicable phase. And what we've noticed is when you put that buyer journey on top, the conversation of where your technology comes in becomes very easy. So for example, if we know in the awareness phase of the buyer journey that people read this one piece of content and once they do, they come to a webinar and request a demo. We know that we need a webinar tool, a CRM to hold this information, and maybe an email tool to send reminders for the awareness phase. And we know that we can consider this a new lead or a nurtured lead or a marketing ready lead. So we already know what our statuses could be, what our life cycle stages could be if we're using HubSpot. But the key is, is to put those steps, the goals and the things that happen on top and then let the technology and the process that you are putting people through be informed by that journey. Because we still do have to pave the way. Just because a buyer can come in and out of the journey at any time doesn't mean that they should be walking into like unkept field. When they enter the buyer journey, 
at any stage, they should see the path forward. And they can only see that if we have mapped this out, thought ahead, asked buyers, asked sellers, and made sure to think holistically about how we can bring someone down this journey. Excellent. So Sebastian, I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So as companies are trying to create, for example, their own internal sales stages, you know, the sales stages that we kind of put that opportunity through, would you recommend that we tie those sales stages to that buyer's journey? Or else. (laughs) (laughs) Good man. All right. We're on the same page. All right. Hey, one last example or question I have for you is, uh, is, can you give us an example of a company, and it might be yours, that you feel like, hey, it's doing it right? I'm a perfectionist. I don't think we're doing this right. I think we can do a lot better. I might have to get back to you on that one. Fair. Hold on. I had a really great sales process with Rippling. Rippling is an HR tech provider. I actually sold against them in a different life. But they met us where we were. They came in a little bit too early. We weren't ready. They gave us the content we needed. A trial was offered, but we didn't do the trial. They were understanding. They gave us some more time and actually handholded us through the process. And now we are happy customers and we've seen a ton of value. And we're probably going to increase our spend with them soon because they were right and we did need those things that we said we didn't need a few months ago. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Sebastian, there's a couple questions we ask every guest at the end of each show. And I'm going to ask this one a little differently based on your experience as an SDR and also a, a LinkedIn post of yours I saw recently. So as a revenue executive, you get prospected to all the time. And plus, you've been in sales and sales development. So of course, you've always been a prospect as well as a prospector. And apart from spelling your name correctly... <laughs> Because I saw this post. Hey, folks out there, if you want to get in touch with Sebastian, make sure you spell it T-I-E-N and not A-N, or Sebastian's going to come back and spell your name wrong as well. I will do that. (laughs) I saw that post. It's not an empty threat. So apart from spelling your name right, what can somebody do in their prospecting to you, assuming they do not have a warm introduction, they don't have a referral, like you don't know them, it's cold. What can they do that actually gains your interest and perhaps even you respond to it? Yeah. Now, keep in mind, this is just for me. And every buyer that you interact with is going to have a different persona, personality, learning process, etc. But there are two ways that I love. The first is come in hot. I'm hitting you up because I think you can benefit for this reason because of this research I did. Say it to me straight. And then I will tell you, like, I'm qualified or I'm not qualified or I'm interested and it's not a good time. Like, let me decide whether or not to talk to you based on the facts. Don't dress it up. Don't tell me you want my opinion on your product when you're just going to turn around and opinion is I should use it. That's the opinion you're looking for. The second one is I love a good non sequitur. Like, if you can hit my inbox with something that has nothing to do with anything else that I have going on, I'm going to answer that. And the one thing that I've actually tried to experiment with, I went to NYU. Our mascot for sports is a bobcat. Bobcats at most can be 40 to 50 pounds. That's not an intimidating mascot. And so I have an automated LinkedIn campaign that goes out to people that went to NYU that match the titles and company sizes that I sell to. And literally all I say is, 
We both went to NYU. Love to meet a fellow bobcat. By the way, bobcat's not an intimidating animal. I think I could beat a bobcat one-to-one in a fight. What do you think? I'm not selling. I'm not presenting value. All I'm saying is, do you think I could beat a bobcat one-to-one in a fight? And I've had, we've gotten discovery calls, potential clients, partners, consultants. We have generated a lot for our business just off of that non-sequitur intro on LinkedIn, which is easy to automate. And once that first message hits, we're in a conversation. I'm not automating steps two or three from that. Awesome. I love it. I've seen a bobcat in my backyard, so... I don't know. I wouldn't want to get in a fight with it. Yeah, you can take it. (laughs) I'll leave that up to you, man. Hey, so one of our last questions, we call it Acceleration Insights. And this is basically it. Hey, what's that one piece of advice you'd want to give our listeners that would help them and achieve their targets and goals? Yeah, learn how to argue and realize that arguing is not fighting. Arguing is presenting a case and trying to change someone's mind. So study argument and study What's the word I'm looking for? Rhetoric? Yeah, rhetoric. Rhetorician. I don't know. It's I've only read it. <laughs> I've only read it in books. Uh, but yeah, study rhetoric, study arguing, because that's what you're doing all the time. Whether you're selling, raising money, installing a new process, building a product, you are making an argument. Hey, man, that's actually really good, especially... These days. <laughs> yeah. That is so good. And I just like also, I don't know if you've read Daniel Pink's To Sell as Human. No, but it's on my list. Okay, you'll like it because it's a lot about the fact that everyone in every role sells all day long because you sell your ideas, you sell like where you're going next, where you're going for dinner, the movie you're going to. You sell all of those things. And so I love that insight because it's like, argument is or convincing people of something is not a negative thing. So yeah, that's fantastic. Love that. Perfect, Sebastian. If a listener was interested in talking to you more about your business or today's topics or hiring you as a speaker, what's the best way to get in contact with you? LinkedIn, 100%. Yeah, send me a message, connect with me. If you follow me, I will connect with you and message you. So be on the lookout for that. Cool. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Well, Sebastian, we cannot thank you enough for your time today. It's been great having you on the show. We've really enjoyed it. Thank you again for being on the show with us today. Thanks, Sebastian. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Awesome. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Experience. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with your family, your friends, your dogs, your kids, get them off screens for a little bit. And if you like what you hear and they like what they hear, please do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. I am Lisa Schneer, joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Noche. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.